My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Falami Jones, Matthew Byard, and Ben Seashell. Amidst direct actions and demonstrations and strikes, it can be easy to forget the profound interconnection between stories and questions of power and justice. Harm and violence to so many are made to seem normal and legitimate through stories. Stories that tell us in a million different ways, that's just how things are, or that's just what those people are like, or they deserved it. Yet stories are also inevitably woven through efforts to challenge such unjust harm. The act of telling stories that name the violence, name the injustice. The act of refusing to be silent, refusing to accept all of those other dominant stories that legitimize injustice and harm are crucial. Through stories, we build the relationships, the solidarity, the support, the collectivity that can be vital in surviving such unjust harms and in finding ways to challenge and change them. Jones, Byard, and Seashell are all involved in a project called Working While Black in Nova Scotia. For all that a lot of white folks try to deny it, there's a centuries-long and ongoing legacy of stories that support the range of indignities, disadvantages, and outright harms that people of African descent on this continent continue to have to navigate, including in workplace contexts. This project, on the other hand, aims to collect, affirm, and mobilize people's stories of anti-black racism in the workplace in the service of justice and change. The project brings together three organizations. Ujama, an organization that advocates on behalf of the black community in Nova Scotia. The Kwacha House Cafe, a cafe and community space focused on addressing social inequities in general and with an emphasis on the African Nova Scotian community. And Solidarity Halifax, a non-sectarian, multi-issue, anti-capitalist organization. Emerging from some community dialogue sessions held by Ujama, the project is focused on a website, workingwhileblacks.com, where people can anonymously submit stories of anti-black racism in the workplace. These stories document important aspects of everyday experience for African Nova Scotians. They have the potential to be a basis for mutual support among people who have these experiences, and for public anti-racist education among those who do not, as well as for being turned into tools for use in future community dialogues and change processes. Jones, Byard, and Seashell talk with me about the past and present of anti-black racism in Nova Scotia, about the origins of the project, about the stories they've collected so far, and about their hopes for what the project can accomplish. We spoke, by Skype, from Halifax. My name is Ben Seashell, and I'm a high school teacher in Halifax, Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, and I'm a member of Solidarity Halifax, and specifically on the Anti-Racism Committee. I'm Falami Jones, and I am a community activist and a owner of a local cafe that looks at social inequities in the broad community, but specifically with an emphasis on the African Nova Scotian community. I'm Matthew Byard. I'm a co-chair of Ujama, which is a group that advocates on behalf of the black community in Nova Scotia, Canada. 
Working While Black in Nova Scotia is a project that is documenting stories of anti-black racism in the workplace in Nova Scotia. It's a web-based project that's been up for a couple months now, and it's a collaboration between three organizations, which are Solidarity Halifax, Quacha House Cafe, and Ujama. I began by asking them to lay out some of the context for the project. I asked them to talk about what racism is in general terms, about anti-black racism in particular, and about some of the specific histories of racism and resistance to it in Nova Scotia. Racism is one of those things that I guess everybody has their own opinion as to what it is. So myself personally, I try not to get bogged down on trying to say, you know, is that racism, is that not racism? I'm more interested in, you know, whether or not something is wrong or unjust. I don't know that it's necessarily most, but I think a lot of white people equate racism to, you know, images of very vicious racial hatred, stuff we saw like in the U.S. decades past, like with the Ku Klux Klan. And so I think in a lot of people's minds, the absence of that means the absence of racism, whereas people who experience racism, particularly people of African descent, Something very small can still be racist. Now, somebody may say, oh, it's not racist because they just, you know, um, didn't want to serve you at that restaurant. It's not a big deal. Well, it may not be a big deal, but I would still define it as racist. And I think we can all agree that that sort of thing is wrong. One of the things I think that comes to mind for me in terms of racism is it works in many different ways. And I think as the interview goes on, we'll see how it can manifest and expose itself in, you know, systemic ways, institutional ways, overt racism, you know, internalized racism. And one of the things you asked about, you know, how is it specific to black people? One of the things that I find and have learned about in school is the concept of black inferiority, which I think is very vast. It stems, I think, from when explorers first discovered Africa, and all you had was word of mouth of, oh, there were these crazy beings and, you know, these wild beasts and things like that. Now, fast forward however many years, I think that anti-black racism is more maybe abundant in North America or particularly in Nova Scotia for reasons like, well, black people tend to be one of the biggest minority groups. And in addition to that, I find there's a lot of stuff that's in the media, in art and things like that that reiterate this idea of black inferiority. There's a lot of studies that prove that many people see black people as less capable or less trustworthy or more likely to cause harm or things like that. And we buy into it. White people buy into it and black people buy into it as well. And so that manifests itself into the way you interact with people. And that's not excluded from the workplace. I think it'd be Fools to think that it is excluded from the workplace or any institution in our society. It's everywhere. This project focuses on anti-black racism, and that goes back to when we first conceived the project. There's a woman named Caroline Wright-Parks, who's also involved with Ujama and who is instrumental in getting this set up. And when we were first discussing it, we said, should it be a website about anti-black racism particularly, or should it be about all forms of racism? And we, we discussed it for a while. And I think the point is that it's not that we're saying that anti-black racism is worse or is necessarily more prevalent, but it's just different. And one thing when you start to learn about different racisms, you realize they are different. Anti-Aboriginal racism is different from anti-black racism, is different from racism against people of South Asian descent and of East Asian descent. The stereotypes are different. The expectations put on people are different. And, you know, the history of people of African descent in Canada, and even particularly in Nova Scotia, is a very particular history. And so this project is looking at it from that historical point of view and really focusing on the experiences of black people here in Nova Scotia.
I was just thinking back to some of the things that my father used to tell me. And growing up as a child, I experienced a lot of overt racism, let alone anything else. And when I would speak to my father about some of those struggles, he would speak to his struggles and his grandmother's struggles and his great-grandmother's struggles. All to say that the experience of racism in Nova Scotia is old. It's very long, and thus the struggle has been really long. And being one of the oldest black communities in Canada, that history comes with very different pains and resistance as well. And when I hear newcomers and those same stories I heard my father talking about, we're still talking some of those same things, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, black communities have been in Nova Scotia since the 1780s, refugees from the Revolutionary War in the United States, and then later from the War of 1812. And from the moment that black people came here who had escaped from slavery and fought on the British side of the war, they came here and found that freedom was not all it's cracked up to be happen in Nova Scotia. They call us the Mississippi of the North up here for a reason. People given the worst land or not given the allotments that they were promised in terms of land and provisions. It's been one thing after another, and that legacy has been passed down to the present day. One of the things Ben said about <clears throat> freedom not being all it's cracked up to be, just a little history lesson. When what were called the United Empire Loyalists or the Black Loyalists who were part of that, when they first came here, Part of the agreement to fight alongside the British in the American Revolutionary War was the promise of not only freedom, but equality in the province. Now, this promise was made on the expectation that the British would win the war and have much more land that they ended up with. And so handing out the land, the white generals and landowners and people who had lost the most were handed out land and provisions first. Black people having come from slavery were naturally at the bottom of the list. And there's a whole thing we can get into about how that unfolded. Fast forwarding a bit, what I hear from like, you know, my parents and my aunts and my uncles, my father's in his late 60s, and he's the youngest of his siblings. So when I hear him and some of his siblings talk about the way things used to be, you hear about, you know, integrated schools, but segregated bathrooms within the schools, teachers maybe being more harsh and more stern with the black students, which I can recall actually seeing in my time in high school, this was in Cole Harbor. I remember my aunt was once telling me something about something going on at the church, a black church, back in the day, and it was on a Wednesday night. And I sort of joked around with her, and I said, oh, you guys were on a at church on a Wednesday night, just joking. And I remember her saying to me, she said, well, back in those days, she said, you didn't go uh, where you wanted. You went where you were welcome. So when I hear about, quote, unquote, the history of racism in Nova Scotia, those, those are the sort of things that pop up into my mind. Canada often likes to see itself as the end of the Underground Railroad, of course, right, where slaves escape to come to freedom. And, you know, there's definitely some truth to that. But, for instance, in the Jim Crow era, when segregation was the law in the United States, Canada had slightly different rules. In Canada, it's not that segregation was mandatory, but it's that segregation was optional. So they didn't say you have to segregate, but they said you can. And so many business owners did. And schools here in Nova Scotia were segregated until the 1950s. They were segregated by law, I think, until the 50s, mm -hmm. and and they were segregated de facto much later than that. Tell me about the founding of this project. The conversations that happen around it are the same conversations that always happen and continue to happen. I was at work the other day, and, you know, such and such happened, and it was blatant racial discrimination towards me, in my opinion. And people can just relate to that sort of thing, because then people have a similar story of their own. With Ujamaa, we'd had a dialogue lounge, a community meeting, to discuss racism in the workplace. There were two speakers, one of whom stands out. She had been in the news because she had made allegations of being racially discriminated against at her place of business. 
So when we invited her to be a guest contributor at the Dialogue Lounge, that sparked a lot of interest for people to want to come out and discuss these sort of things. The idea for Working While Black came from those discussions. Again, just 20, 30, 40 people in a room sitting around discussing their experiences and discussing, you know, what type of things we can do to combat that sort of thing or to highlight it. Because often you hear about this term, the race card. Oh, it was not racism. You're just being overly sensitive. Well, you can't prove it was racism or, you know, how do you know for sure? And when you're black and you live for a certain amount of time, sometimes you just know you don't have the energy, the patience, or even the willingness to try to explain it to somebody, you know, to prove your point because, you know, it's like, what's the point sometimes? But when we get amongst ourselves, we're in a more comfortable space to discuss that sort of thing, be more specific. And so the idea for Working While Black came out of that meeting. Out of those meetings within the black community, we in Solidarity Halifax were approached by Caroline Wright-Parks, who works with Ujamaa, and who said, listen, we have these conversations in the black community. Everybody knows it's happening. You guys are good at publicity. You guys are good at getting the word out beyond the black community. Can we team up and make something happen? And so out of that, we came up with this project to start a website, which for people in the black community, it would bring their stories together and, and sort of validate those experiences. And for people outside the black community, it would allow them to see that, hey, this is still happening in 2015, which unfortunately a lot of people don't realize still these days. And then Falami joined us as well. We started having meetings here at her cafe. And I think the cafe also offers a unique place to come and share your stories that people of African descent or even white folks that have stories as allies can come in and share their stories. And I, too, am a part of the project, I guess, just in terms of my own community activism, but also trying to challenge the way that we dialogue. That's the cafe. (laughs) And what were the steps from this initial idea to actually having the website up and running? Lots of meetings to decide what kind of background information we wanted on there and logistical things about who can post and when and how and if it would be curated and if we would allow comments and things like that. It all came down to six or eight people sitting in a room together and talking about the best way to make this happen. And then we were preparing for a launch, which was supposed to happen a couple months down the road. But in the age of social media, you can't uh, usually keep things under wraps for very long. And so someone at CBC here in Halifax saw the website and asked us to come in and people started sending stories in from there. One of the great things that I love about this project is the collective ideas that come out and the discussions that happen. There are some really dynamic people that sit around this table and have some of those difficult conversations. And sometimes we even get lost in time trying to work out those small things because there's a lot of detail. Like, for example, if someone was to submit a story, how do we edit the story and who gets to be one of the editors? And so making sure that the power dynamics are open and transparent and that there's a lot of leadership coming from the African Nova Scotian community. And so I'd say there's a lot of little collective decisions in supporting each other that makes this project work and allows it to get to the broader community as a whole, while still supporting the African Nova Scotian community that when you talk about racism is, how would you say, like a a burn on your skin, very sensitive, you know. And I think a project like this encourages but also supports those kinds of stories to be exposed because it can be anonymous, because it can also be one of your friends that brings the story in. Nothing's necessarily set in stone in terms of, you know, is it going to work this way? Is it going to work that way? We're still in the beginning phases of this and seeing where exactly it's going to go. 
what I like about the site, though, is just the fact that the stuff is documented. Here it is. It's documented. It's somewhere for people to reference. And I think that's very important because especially with a lot of young people who enter the workforce and maybe have heard about racism, but never really witnessed it or experienced it. I think it's important for them to be able to see things that have been documented and be able to relate to that, to know, hey, I'm not crazy or, hey, that person who's discriminating me against my workplace shouldn't be doing that. And if it can help to give them a little bit extra courage within themselves when dealing with discrimination that they shouldn't have to deal with, I think that's good. We had a conversation about do we allow people to comment on these posts? And we decided that no, we didn't want to that because when you enable that, then you let people go on and say, oh, that wasn't really racist. This happened or really questioning people's experiences. And there's plenty of places on the Internet for people to do that. We wanted this site to be for black people's experiences to kind of stand alone and not to be questioned and nitpicked because that happens quite often. Mm. Another big question that came up is who gets to curate, who gets to read, who gets to submit stories. It is working while well black in Nova Scotia, but at the same time, we do encourage people who are not black, who witness anti-black racism to come forward with that as well. It's like a friend of mine told me once, he said, you know, when I'm out of the room, people will say things that they won't say when I'm in the room. And we want those stories to be documented as well. So it's an interesting dynamic for us to figure out who's participating in this project in what capacity and who's leading it and whose responsibility is it to lead it? Whose responsibility is it to expose anti-black racism and to fight anti-black racism? I don't think it's just the responsibility of black people to do that. Mm -hmm. Tell me a bit about the stories that you've received so far. They're upsetting. When you ask me about them, I try to think back to one in particular, and I mean, to me, it's always the same story. You know, you read it, some of them you can relate to, not all of them you can, but at the same time you can relate to how that probably made the person feel. So in a word, I would say upsetting. A lot of the stories have come through at the beginning through Coachalos Cafe, and I think it's bittersweet having to hear other people's stories and document them and retell them and then go back through the stories again. Everybody has something that they can relate to around racism if they're black and living in Nova Scotia. One of the other interviews that we had done a few months ago, the lady had suggested that, well, you know, overt racism was in the 1960s, you know, how do you see it now? But I actually argue that it is still very overt. And some of those highlighted stories, like one that was a lady who was from Jamaica working as a health care and was visiting one of her clients. And the client insisted that she was the lady off of the Book of Negroes from a magazine and that she was famous and that was her. Even though she had been with this client for a very long time and had history with her, the client was like, no, this is you, and insisted that the picture of the slave was her. Part of it was obvious that she was relating the role of the mammy and the role of this now caretaker. There was another woman that come in who was also Caribbean, who every time she goes to work, she's asked, how come she speaks such good English? And she in turn was like, uh, I don't know, maybe because I've been speaking it since I learned how to speak. Yet there's this assumption that because she has an accent that she can't speak English. So the things that people say and do would surprise you, but yet not. There was a story about people sitting around a call center just chit-chatting. I'm assuming there was just one black person in the group. And the discussion was outdated points of view or something like that that our parents have or old ways that our parents have. And this person was sitting back thinking, oh, I bet one of these people are going to talk about how their parent is racist. And right on cue, somebody starts talking gleefully about how his father doesn't like uh, niggers and how he's racist and this and that. 
And so just by the story itself, okay, whatever, we're sharing stories, but, you know, even the inclusion of you saying the word nigger and just the fact that you seem to be saying this stuff as if, oh, my good old dad, this is what he's like. Mm-hmm. The minute that he gets up to voice his being upset about that, everybody gangs up on him or her. I'm not sure if it was a man or woman, but, you know, you're being too sensitive. Um, so-and-so, they didn't mean anything by it. And it's almost like you go from being the victim to being the perpetrator. People are offended by you being offended <laughs> at, <laughs> at, at their racism. I mean, yeah. Palami laughs, but that's no, it's exactly true. Yeah, yeah. You're how, calling how out racism is the real racism. Yeah. <laughs> and it seems like... From what, from, what, from what I remember mm-hmm. from a lot of the stories, this seems like a, a common theme. But again, these are conversations that myself, I've experienced, heard uh, for a long time. So I just Here's think it's important one. to, again, document these things. This is my own story in the cafe where I had two customers come in. One customer actually comes regularly and I appreciate the support of the business. However, she came in with two white women who came into the cafe and they got talking and they for some reason, wanted me to sit in and have the conversation around close by, which was okay, you know, to say hello. But in the midst of their conversation, they started to talk about the cafe, you know, wow, how cool it is and how their sons could come here all by themselves, that this was like astonishing to them, that they needed each other. And she was like, my son, she said, is so brave, he could come here all by himself. And I remember looking at her and feeling this like anger to think like, what the hell did you think? Did you think that the cafe is like, a corner full of guns and violence. Why would it be such a big deal for you to come by yourself to the cafe that you needed your friend to come and then have me join in a conversation so you could tell me what great cafe this is, how your son should be here, but they're so brave they could come by themselves. No, no. She exotified me. I was sitting there and she's literally showing the girl, look at her, look at, isn't this cool space? This is such a great space. And they're almost daredeviling themselves to come into the cafe. You know, how is it that because it becomes a black space that all of a sudden you must feel threatened? That piece really hurt me. And then to, to kind of layer it with this exotified, you know, come and meet my newfound friend. And this is such a cool culture place to come to. But outside of that, you wouldn't come here by yourself and probably would not have any association with any other black person in your community of social circles. So tell me about the importance of stories. Why is it? an important thing to be collecting them and to be publishing them and circulating them and talking about them? I think the level of importance is yet to reveal itself. Who knows where it may go? Right now, I just think it's important to document these sort of things so that they're documented. You can read statistics all you want about the overrepresentation of African-Canadian people in prisons, and you can read about studies that show that black people have, have a harder time getting a job, but really, there's no substitute for individual stories. They have that purpose of really personalizing people's experience and allowing someone to say, wow, this is a person, this is a human being, and, and it, it's, they're very relatable. And just having a large number of those stories makes it that much easier. Mm. And I think, too, one of the things that made me really want to get on to the project and support is that this project exposes it in 2015. So the stories, unlike a piece of research or an article, they're showing that this is alive. It is alive and it is kicking and it's reproducing. And first voice stories are always an amazing way to connect with people across all different kinds of philosophies, races, genders. And I think that's what's really unique about the dynamics of the project, of who sits at the table, but also probably, hopefully, 
those that will be reading these stories and relating to them, that it's something you can do in your own time and quietly read and cry if you need to. And not feel the need to be defensive mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. I think when we have this conversation amongst strangers, we don't have an honest conversation. We're afraid of offending people. We're afraid of being offended. We're afraid of getting frustrated or having an argument with people who we deem ignorant. So mm-hmm. being able to go on your own time to read this sort of stuff uninterrupted, I think, is a good tool, something that this province needs and hasn't had as of yet. And in terms of the employment, most of the stories that I collected, the ones at least that I was able to collect for Kwachehose Cafe, when you ask the people that submitted their stories, what did they do or, or have they been able to address their employer, most of them said, are you crazy? I'll lose my job. So it's also an outlet to be able to say it's real and we're hoping to look at ways and to support people with those stories if they want to take it further or whatnot. But a lot of times people aren't able to even share it. You just got to hold it because can you afford to lose a job? Can you afford to expose to other people that you don't trust in your employment office? Yeah, no. One of the questions that you go into on the website is that connection between racism and capitalism. Can you talk a little bit more about that connection? Capitalism was built on racism. (laughs) That's right. right. Capitalism was built on racism, on colonial dispossession of indigenous people and on dehumanization of people of African descent. I mean, how do you steal 12 million people from a land and force them into chattel slavery if you don't view them as as subhuman? The whole wealth of North and South America and of Europe was built on racism, on treating people as subhuman and exploiting them for their labor. And that has gone on in different forms since those days. So the project, as you've talked about, is still in its early stages. Give me a sense of the kinds of ways that it might develop and grow over the next year, say. I would just hope, if anything, it it picks up momentum. When I see somebody chiming in on Facebook about one of the stories, to me, I don't want to set the bar too low, but to me that says, you know, it's already done something. It's got people talking about this thing. It has people less willing to accept it. I would hope that would pick up steam. I would hope that maybe somebody reads some of these stories or gets involved with it to the point that they come up with a new idea that we didn't even think of, and maybe that's going to do something to help curb racism in the workplace. It seems to be a popular idea. We're still exploring it. We're going to have an event soon to have a sort of more or less official launch. We'll have speakers on anti-black racism, and we'll have places where people can come and tell their stories and have them be recorded so that they can be put up on the website. Aside from that, I'd say we're open to anything. Mm-hmm. Part of what our hopes is for the future is also to have further community dialogues around it, a deeper analysis of what those stories are. We have those conversations independently, but it's not necessarily on the website. So the hope is that you might even be able to take some of those stories with some in-depth analysis and use it as a teaching platform, whether it's in training staff, whether it's in school systems. You know, I think the possibilities are endless. You have been listening to my interview with Falami Jones, Matthew Byard, and Ben Seashell about the Working While Black in Nova Scotia project. To learn more about their work, or to share your story of anti-black racism in a Nova Scotia workplace, go to workingwhileblackns.com. That's all one word, workingwhileblackns.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked Radio. 
That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Filled.